Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. If you have your Bibles, your devices, you can look at the screen. All my notes, everything that's in front of me is going to be on those screens. We're going to actually hit portions of two chapters today. We've been in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. Remember, the book of Acts was written by a guy named Luke. Luke's profession was he was a, a physician, a doctor. And if you remember, the book of Acts was just a continuation of the gospel of Luke. Luke wrote two books. He wrote the gospel of Luke. The gospel of Luke tells us what Jesus began to do and teach. But the book of Acts tells us what Jesus continues to do and teach, not through himself, but through his church. And so great things are happening. We've, we've gotten through almost four chapters of the book of Acts, and we see some great things that are happening. The church is growing. It's now about 10,000 people. People are getting saved. People are getting healed. Uh, Peter and John are leading the charge, and we're he hearing a lot about them. They're becoming a threat, though, as they lead this first century church. They're becoming a threat to the first century religious society. They're becoming a threat to the Roman Empire. Why? Because they're preaching a resurrected Jesus. This has never been preached before. If you remember last week, I told you this, Jesus will mess up an agenda. You can say God all you want, but as soon as you say Jesus, ears perk up. Jesus will mess up some agendas. He'll mess up political agendas. He'll mess up sexual agendas. He'll, me he'll just mess up agendas. And that's what we see happening. And so the Sadducees were we're ticked off at Peter and John because they're preaching this resurrected Jesus. So they have them arrested and they, they're getting ready to prosecute him. And I want to read one verse that we read last week that we're going to continue on. And this is what it said when the prosecutors saw Peter and John. It says this in verse 13 of Acts chapter 4. When they saw the, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished. Everybody say astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They, they were astonished with their courage, with their boldness. They, they, they realize that their impact far outstretched their intellect, that there's no way that these guys should have this type of influence. They, they were ordinary guys. They, didn't, they weren't theologians. They weren't schooled. They weren't versed. And, and so, but they said, in order for this to happen, it was obvious that they had to be with Jesus. And so these guys are deliberating. And in the next few verses, we're going to see the high priest are deliberating and they're asking questions. And I'm not going to read it all to you just for the sake of time. But they say things like, you know, what are we going to do with these guys? What, what are we going to do? They're messing up our system. But, you know, there is no denying the miracle. We, we, we saw the lame man get up in Acts chapter 3. We saw that. There's no denying it. And we really have no grounds to hold them any longer. So they deliberate and they go and they meet with Peter and John. They say, boys, here's the deal. We're going to let you go. We're going to let you go. Just promise us that you won't talk about Jesus anymore. How I many know that didn't go over real well? Let's pick it up now in Acts chapter 4, verse 19. Y'all can't talk about Jesus. Here's Peter and John's response. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, make your own judgment. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. By the way, that's what a witness does. They just attest to what they have seen and heard. Remember Acts 1.8, go and be my witnesses. All they're doing is witnessing to what they have seen 
and heard. So we cannot stop speaking to what we have seen and heard. So what they're saying is, okay, Mr. Sadducees, you're telling us we can't take a, talk about Jesus. Now nah, we're good. We're going to keep doing it. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. So watch this. They, they release them. After this, Peter and John go and they find the other believers, the other disciples, and they tell them what happened. Y'all, they threw us in jail for preaching. Now you would think that the other believers would be a little afraid, would be scared. Y'all got arrested. Oh no, we're out of here. But that's not what happened. Let me read it to you. Acts 4, 27 through 31. For truly in this city, this, this, this is a prayer that Peter and John are praying now to God. They are praying with the other believers. Here's their prayer. For truly in this city, there's were gathered against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed God, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Verse 29, and now Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And verse 31 says this, and when they prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So watch this, when Peter and John are arrested, they don't pray with the other believers, Lord, protect us from persecution. They don't pray that. They say, Lord, give us a boldness and a courage to speak anyway. That's the type of church I want to be a part of. Some people with some moxie, some people with courage, some people with a backbone for Jesus. You, you can do whatever you want. We still going to preach this thing. How many think that that's a good church to be a part of? Everybody say a good church. Say it again, a good church. I really wanted to preach a message to you this morning entitled The Good Church. And then I read Acts chapter five and I realized I couldn't. So here's the message I want to preach to you this morning. Here's the title, The Church, The Good, The Bad, and The Nasty, The Ugly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the reading of your word. God, teach us, help us, speak to us. Hide me behind your cross today, Lord. Let these people not hear my words. Let them hear your words as we speak. God, we know it's only your words that can change us. Change us today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Sounds like a good movie title. The good, the bad, and the ugly. How many of you understand in any marriage, in any relationship, you're going to experience the good, the bad, and the ugly. In your life, if you live this thing long enough, you're going to experience the good, the bad, and the ugly. You're going to have seasons when you're on the mountaintop, but you're also going to walk in the valley. You're going to feel the blessings and the burdens. You're going to experience the good, the bad, and the ugly. In any country, America is no different. You're looking at America right now on this 4th of July. America is full of good, bad, and ugly. In any church, 
you're going to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. How many know that even the Bible is filled with the good, the bad, and the ugly? Everybody say the Bible. I just want to remind you this morning that the Bible is the best-selling book of all times. Y'all, the Bible has sold over 6 billion copies. That's almost 5 billion more than any other book ever in print. It is the most scrutinized book, but it's also the most cherished book in the world. It is filled with the best news that you will ever hear. It tells us where we came from. It tells us where we're going. And it tells us how to live along the way. It is poetic. It's historical, but most of all, it is God-inspired. God breathed through his nostrils into the spirits of men. This is God's word. When we open up the Bible, it's like God speaking to us. It's God's love letter to his children. That's what the word of God is. It's God's words to a fallen humanity. But let's be real honest. If you read this thing from cover to cover, it contains some pretty sketchy stuff, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, there's stories of, of, of violence and murder and rape and adultery and uh, polygamy and war and genocide and a whole lot of other crazy stuff. I love what Mark Twain said. Mark Twain said this, by the way. He said, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. There's some stuff in there that I understand. They're like, ah, that's some crazy Stuff. Why? Because the Bible's not for the faint-hearted. It's not. I had one guy tell me a long time ago, he says, you know, I don't read the Bible because it's filled with sex and violence and murder. Then why do you watch Netflix? <laughs> Listen, the Bible is filled with awful stories because the Bible is filled with stories about people just like me and you. How many of you understand that? Because inside of every one of us, there is the good, the bad, and the ugly. And all the Bible is is a full-length mirror that shows us the good, the bad, and the ugly. It shows the good, the bad, and the ugly of humanity. It shows the good, the bad, and the ugly of government. It shows, it shows the good, the bad, and the ugly of even the church. Watch this. I got my phone with me this morning. Uh, does anybody, y'all follow me, camera? Anybody like to uh, post pictures of themselves or their friends? Any social influences in here? You're on Instagram, TikTok. You, you like anybody? Okay, who, who? Somebody help me out. Danica. Hey, y'all, this is Danica. So, so what happens is, if you're on social media, apparently you, 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 you post pictures of yourself. And then people like it, Right? And so uh, I thought this would be great, Danica. We going. Hey, what are we doing? You got, I can't reach my button. There Come we go. On, I got you. The photo bottle. Now, Danica, is, is that a good picture? That's us. We're beautiful. She said it's beautiful. But let's be real honest. Danica didn't look at my picture. My eyes were closed. She looked at her picture. Because that's what you do. When, when you take a picture to post online, there can be 17 people in the picture. There's only one person you're looking at to see if it's post-worthy or not. To see if you can put that bad boy on Instagram. 
You ain't looking at the person to your left or your right. You looking at you. And if you look good, it don't matter if they got a booger, food in their teeth. It don't matter. If you look good. Now, Danica, I have to pick on you because you are a woman. Girls are the worst. Now, most guys don't, a lot of guys don't post a lot of pictures of themselves. They do. We just go with the first one. It's a hunt and pick. Boom. That's it. I read this this week about you girls. Only 11% of women will post the first picture taken. That means 90% of y'all, it takes more than one. Watch this. 48% of you ladies, the two to five range you good with. Two, now three, two to five. You're good in that two to five. It takes two to five to find the good picture. So about half of you. Now watch this. 28% need six to 10 picks before they get, anybody in here will just go ahead and admit you need six to 10. A couple of, man. Okay, now if you in this next category, we're going to have prayer at the end for you. 10% of you need 11 to 15 selfies before choosing the perfect one. Today on Instagram, 95 million selfies will be posted. Here's the crazy part. Of those 95 million, the ones that you took 11 times to take the perfect one, that picture still ain't good enough for 49%. Watch this. 49% of the 95 million photos posted on Instagram today will have some type of filter placed on it. That's 47 million pictures today will be posted with filters. Why? Because humanity wants to filter out the blemishes and hide them. We want to cover our flaws, not flaunt them. Don't look at that image. Make me skinnier. I want to portray something that I'm really not. What am I saying? It is the propensity of humanity that we only want people to see our good, not the bad and the ugly. And this speaks to a conflict in all of us. And here is the conflict. The conflict is the conflict of who we are who we really are, and how we would like to appear. Human nature has the proclivity to filter out and cover up. That's just what we do. I don't want to show you that part of my life. I don't want to show you my weakness. I don't want to show you my frailty. I don't want to show you my failures. I want to show you my good stuff. I want to show you my highlight reel. I'm not going to show you the bad days. I'm going to take 17 pictures and filter all the stuff that I still don't like because I want to project an image of who I want you to think I am, even though I'm really not. Human nature has the proclivity to filter and cover. The Bible, however, provides an unfiltered picture of man. It details the good, the bad, and the ugly. In the book of Acts, Luke provides an accurate, brutally honest, unfiltered pick of the early church. Remember, Luke was a physician. He's not going to spare on details. Luke holds nothing back. But the fourth, the first four chapters of the book of Acts is, is all good. It's, it's good. When you read Acts 1 to 4, y'all, it's, 
It's good. You're just looking at the, the outward appearance. I, I just wrote a couple of these downs. Number one, they, they were devoted to prayer. That's, that's good. Number two, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That's good. They were meeting together. They were learning from one another. They were fellowship together. They were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. That is good. They performed the miracles in the name of Jesus. That's good. They saw 10,000 people get saved in a short period of time. That's good. Acts 3 and 4 tells the church was bold and courageous and they stood up for Jesus. All good. It even gets better. If you get to verse 32, it says this. Now the number of those who believed were one of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Watch this. But they had everything in common and with great power. The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Can you imagine a community or can you imagine a church with not one needy person? How did it happen? For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds from what was sold and they laid at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as they had a need. Thus Joseph, who was also called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levi, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Y'all, this is amazing. Look, this is what the church is supposed to look like. Talk about unity. Talk about selflessness. This church was marked. How many know that the church should be marked by things that don't mark the world? That we should look different, that we should think different, that we should act different. And if you look at how these verses started, it says this in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says, now the full number of those, say it with me, the full number of those, Acts 4.32, for the full number of those who believe. So it's talking about the believers. These weren't the attenders. These were the believers. Those who believe. When you believe, you are marked differently. What marked them? What made them different? There were two marks of believers according to Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and 34. Number one. Their heart is loosened in relationship to things. They just, I don't care about the stuff. I'm I'm not gripped to the stuff. The stuff doesn't matter. So what was their heart gripped to? Number two, the heart is tightened in its relationship to people. What am I saying? The mark of the first century church was they cared more about people than stuff. They cared more about people than image. They cared more about people than than things. Now, if you read Luke's gospel, you'll see this is one of the main burdens. Luke teaches that Christians should be free from the love of things while holding firm in our love for people. That's what the story is all about. It's, It's a snapshot of a community of people who've been utterly revolutionized by believing in Jesus. They, they found themselves freely caring, freely selling land and houses and giving the money to the church for the distribution of those with special needs. That, that is amazing. They were taking care of one another. Okay. This is a pattern that we see all throughout the book of Acts, that they were selling things, that they were using things, that they, there was really this sense of community. It's first mentioned in Acts chapter two. If you go back with me to Acts chapter two, this is the first time that we see this. Acts chapter two, verse 44 and 45. And it says, and all the believers, let's put that on the screen. And all the believers, Acts two, there we go, 44. In the back. There we go. 
And all, everybody say all, who believed were together and had all things in common. And watch what all we're doing. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as many that had a need. Can you imagine this? This is crazy. Can, can you just imagine this concept? We're, we're a family. We're, we're, we're a church family. And, and you come in and you say, man, Pastor Nick, I got, I got some needs, man. We, we, we lost the business. I don't know how we're going to eat. Hey, no problem. Johnny just sold his farm. We're going to take what he had that he doesn't need. We're going to give it to you. That's crazy. Oh, Billy's family struggling? No problem. Tim sold his boat. It's so foreign to us. And here's what's crazy. They didn't give like this because God commanded them to sell their possessions. They didn't give this way because Peter and John stood up and said, hey, this is a mandate from God. Everybody got to sell what you got and we're going to give it to each other. They didn't do that. They did this because they felt compelled to. It created a culture of complete abandonment. And here's what it consisted of. It consisted of a love for God. How many know that if you don't love God, you ain't going to love your brother? It starts with a love for God. If they don't love God, there's no way they're going to do this. Number two, you got to love people. They had to have a love for people. You ain't selling your stuff and giving to somebody else if you don't love them. Number three, they had a cheerful heart. This wasn't given grudgingly or resentfully. They were like, oh man, I can't believe we're going to write this chick. Oh my gosh, if they would just get their stuff together, I can't believe I got to sell my farm to take care of him. They weren't doing that. They, they were doing this because they wanted to do it. It was a cheerful heart. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Each one of you must do as he's decided. It's talking about giving in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a... God loves a cheerful giver. Not a stingy one. There's no such thing as stingy Christian. Those words are oxymoronic. They were giving because they were aware of how much had been given to them through Jesus. So they have a love for God, a love for people, a cheerful heart, and y'all trust. It says that they were, take, they were selling their land. They were taking the money, just cash, and they were going just throwing it at the apostles' feet. Y'all, that's trust. Like, let me see your books, Peter. Is Matthew going to come and audit you? They, they didn't care about, they were just saying, you know what? This is what God's put on our heart. We're just going to take, take some trust. Can I just say, say this? Thank you for trusting us. And by the way, our measures are way more strenuous and strict than that. We have audits. We have tons of accountability when, when you give money. But, but we cannot do the work of the ministry without you giving. It's why we're able to do what we do is because you give. That's why we were able to clean up South Park just a few weeks ago, y'all. Thank y'all for showing up. Thank y'all for giving. Thank you for doing that. I was so excited. We took our team this Tuesday, Wednesday. We went to OPD. Y'all was an incredible time. Uh, we, we got to cook for uh, every police officer, deputy, dispatcher, uh, custodian that works at OPD. We got to spend time there. We prayed for them. We sent all, thank you for writing the letters. I got a text from Chief and from, uh, from, from, from Scott. 
And they put those letters, those cards all around OPD and they got pictures. They sent me pictures of the officers reading those cards of encouragement that you sent. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for giving the funds so we can go and love on our city. Y'all, this, this week, we're, we're, we're going to OJ. We, we're going to OJ. It's going to cost thousands of dollars for us to do what we're going to do. Why? By the way, is Miss Gail here? Where's she at? Hey, thank you, Miss Gail. Thank you for having a heart. Thank you for having a heart for these students to bring value. So when they walk in, the first thing they say is value. That's how they're going to view themselves. So we're going to go in and we're going to take care of all the things that need upgrading. We're going to paint. We're going to do landscaping. We're going to get dirty. Y'all be there. Why are we doing this? Because we love our community. We love our community. And one of the primary traits of following Jesus is generosity. That's what we're going to do. By the way, be, just be there. Show up, 9 a.m. Bring your work clothes. Bring somebody. Bring your kids. Bring your family. I'm taking my kids with me. I want my kids to see this. I want my kids to understand this. We want to build a culture in our home of serving others. Generosity. Generosity should always be a trait that marks us. I hope you're getting the picture of the good church. Are you? Acts chapter 1 through 4. It was a church on fire. The church was prayerful. It was powerful. It was bold. It was generous. And the last verse of chapter four sums it all up. It introduces to a man named Barnabas. I love this dude. You're going to see him a whole lot in the book of Acts. Acts 34, 36 says, thus Joseph, who was also called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levi, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, brought all the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this guy is a bold encourager who was selfless. He gives to others. That is Barnabas. That's who I want to be. Okay. So far, so good. Everything looks good. The church is good. Danica, no filter needed. Good picture. It's a good picture of the church. Luke tells us that the church looked really, really good. Their feet were moving. Their hearts were feeling. Their eyes were seeing the needs in the church. And their hands were reaching out to meet these needs. But in Acts chapter 5, something happens. It's like Luke, the physician, takes out the x-ray machine. How many know the x-ray machine, the CAT scan, will show you stuff that you can't see on the outside? And in Luke chapter, excuse me, Acts chapter 5, we begin to see for the first time the cancer that's really on the inside of the church. Go with me to Acts chapter 5. I'm going to spend our next 10 or 15 minutes here. It says this, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Everybody say, uh-oh. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did you not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. That means kaput. He's done. Dead. Graveyard. Dead. And great fear came upon all who heard it. 
the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Okay. He dies. They bury him. Okay. His wife, I don't know where she is, but she ain't there because it says an interval of three hours came. His wife came in not knowing what happened. She doesn't know her husband's dead. Okay. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold this land for so much. He goes, all right. You said you sold this land for $50,000. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last breath. When the young man came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Look at verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is crazy. This is a crazy, crazy story. I'm glad God doesn't operate like this today. Okay, this married couple, let me tell you what happens, sells some land. They give some of the money to the church and they keep some of the money to themselves. But they give the impression that they gave all. Does that make sense? So let's say they sold the land for $100,000. They tell the church, we sold it for $50,000. Here's everything. It's not the fact that they sold, the amount they sold it for. The fact was that they lied. They give the impression that they really gave it all. So Peter confronts Ananias on this. He says, you sold the land for this, but you gave this. That's a lie. Satan filled your heart. When he says that, Ananias dies, boom, dead. Okay, three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, comes in. Peter has the same conversation with her. Y'all sold the land for this? Yes, we did. No, that's a lie. Boom, she's dead. As soon as that happened, it says a great fear came over the, all the church. Of course it did. Can you imagine on the way out this morning, the ushers are standing there with the bucket, and you're putting in your little envelope, your offering, and, you know, and Terry looks at you and says, is this all of it? But, you, you know, you, you, you stuck some in the back. You know, because you're going to stop at Billy's on the way home. So you said, yeah, that's all of it. And you put in there, he goes, liar, boom. And we're picking up dead bodies on the way. Can you imagine that? That's crazy. Well, let me explain this to you, okay? What, what was the problem with Ananias and Sapphira? I mean, there was no mandate. They did sell their land, didn't they? They, they, they did give some money to the church, didn't they? they? They weren't even like commanded to do this. I'm sure even their amount wasn't the whole amount. Their amount was still greater than somebody else's amount. So what was wrong with Ananias and Sapphira? I'm just going to give you quick, four quick thoughts and then I'll close. Number one, they were selfish. They were selfish. When you're selfish, you want the world to see the filtered you. Because you make it about you. It's not about God. It's not about obedience. It's about you. They made the sale. They looked at the cash. They couldn't bear the thought of giving it all away. So they kept some back because they were selfish. They made it about them. Do you know that you can even come to God and pretend like it's about God, but still make it about you? You can come to the Father and it really not be about the Father. It can be about you. Let me give you a little illustration from my own life. I remember when the kids were smaller, I used to come home in the afternoons, and they don't do this anymore because they're getting older now. But I remember when the kids would, would come home 
Or I'd come home and I'd walk in the door and I'd hear from the back room, daddy's home, daddy's home. And I remember the kids, they were, you know, three, four years old, coming, running in and just jumping my arms, both in the same time. I'd pick them up and squeeze them and it was just awesome. They wanted to see dad. And I remember, man, one day I had like a really, really bad day. And I kind of forgot that they did this, but man, it's just one of those days and I, and I made it home and I opened the door. I didn't even say dad was home. They, they just ran and both of them as fast. I mean, I've never seen them this fast. I mean, they jumped in my arms and I'm just squeezing them. And all of a sudden I feel so good about myself. Like it made my day that these kids, you know, would want to come to me. I'm their dad. And, you know, and I, I let them down. Oh, I love you, boy. I love you, Savannah. You're so amazing. And I let them down, you know, feeling good about myself. Like, yes, I'm such a good dad. And they love me and they ran to me. They still want to run to me. And then Tucker looks at Savannah and he says, I won. <laughs> and Savannah says, no, I won. No, I got there first. They weren't running to see me. <laughs> they were running because it was a competition. It was me first. Listen to me. Even when coming to the Father, they made it about them. My fear is in the, in the church, even sometimes in coming to the Father, we make it about ourselves. The reason Ananias comes forward to give really wasn't about the Father. It was about him. People are going to talk about me when I put this altar, this this offering at the altar, they're going to know that I'm a big giver. He was making it all about him. Why? Number two, because they loved and lived for the praise of men. This is dangerous. So obviously, he's selfish. He loves the money, but he also loves the praise of men. By the, by the way, not all of the time, but most of the time, these two go together. When you see a love of money, most of the time you will always see the love for the praise of men as well. Why? Because they both fill the same void. Look at another time in scripture when we see these two together. Go with me now to Luke chapter 16, verse 14 through 15. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. It says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus and he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of of others. So he's talking to the religious people who loved money and they also tried to justify themselves in the eyes of their peers. Why? Because the love of money and the praise of men always, almost always go together. It's why most people spend the money the way they do. It's not because they need the stuff. Some people will spend money they don't even have to impress people they don't even like. Why? It's insecurity. It's filling a void. Listen to me. There's only one person we really need to seek approval from. It's not your neighbor. It's God. Number three, they lied. This one's obvious. Why lie? To cover their covetousness. They, they wanted to hold on to something, but to give the impression of their generosity. So here it is. Here's the whole reason. You can write it down in this one, in this one phrase. Here's the big issue. The issue is they wanted to look generous, but they didn't want to pay the price to be generous. You know what that's called? That's pretending to be one thing, generous, while being something else, stingy. In church, when you pretend to be one thing, while you're actually being something completely opposite, we call that 
hypocrisy, hypocrite. That's what they were. They were hypocrites. And in their hypocrisy, number four, they discredited and misrepresented the Holy Spirit. Verse three says they lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse four says they lied to God. And verse nine says they tempted the Lord. So I'm closing. I told you all this, the good, the bad, and the ugly. What in the world does the story of Ananias and Sapphira have to do with me and you? Everything. Everything. It's pretending to give all of your life to Jesus on a Sunday. But in reality, you've only given him portions of it. While letting others believe you gave him all. When we profess one thing, yet live completely different, we are no different than Ananias and Sapphira. If you are honest, if I'm honest, there's been moments in my life as a Christian man that I've been a hypocrite. There's been moments when I've believed one way, professed one way, proclaimed one way. Yet there's been seasons where I, I live, there's been, it's been a struggle. I think if we're all honest, there's seasons and there's moments have you ever been there? Are you there now? And here's the hard part. I don't think anybody knew except the Spirit of the Lord when Ananias came down. Outwardly, nobody knew. And, and that's the hard part. Is that nobody may ever know because all they see is the filter. All they see is the outside. But it's not an outside thing. It's a heart thing. See, what really marks us as Christians is when your lips and your heart are in unison. I remember when I was a kid, we used to sing this song. The knee bones connected to the thigh bone. Thigh bones connected to the hip bone, hip bones connected to the, and you, you just keep going all through the body. You know what we should be singing as Christians? The heart bones connected to the lip bone, the lip bones connected to the heart bone. They have to be in unison. What's in here or what comes out of here has to be the same. And the problem with Ananias and Sapphira's was they were saying one thing, but it wasn't in here. Look, look at what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 7. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. Then Jesus defines what a hypocrite is. He says, these people honor me with their lips. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Hallelujah. Sing that song and amen, pastor. But their hearts are so far from me. And the problem with Ananias and Sapphira was their lips and their hearts weren't connected. See, Christianity is really about when we, not when we give Jesus our words, it's when we give him our heart. You've got to give him your heart. Love the Lord your God with half your heart. That's not what it says. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart. I love how Dr. Scott Adams says, he says, when we give our lives to him, but keep the rest to ourselves, that's called part-time Christianity. And part-time Christians cannot defeat a full-time devil. Ananias was a part-time Christian. I'll give you part of it. Part of my heart. Part of my finances. You fill in the blank. Isn't that, how, I mean, this was not about money. This was never about money. I, I'm giving part of my heart. I'm giving part of my marriage. I'm giving part of this area of my life. But look what happens because you can't be a part-time Christian and defeat a full-time devil. Acts 5.3 says, but when Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Apparently, since their hearts were not fully committed to Jesus, they made room for Satan's lies. Write this down. An uncommitted heart is the breeding ground for Satan's lies. It's when you start to really believe that it's okay that the Sunday morning you and the Friday night you can be two different people. Ananias on Friday night. Yeah, girl, we keeping this money. Sunday morning, we lay it all at your feet. I surrender all. Two different people. And it was the lie of the enemy that caused the wedge. I wonder how many lies he's spoken to people in here say, it's okay. You're not that far off. You're not that bad. Just keep doing it. Ananias on Sunday, I'm giving you all, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise him. Come on, somebody. And don't get into the lie of thinking this is about the money. It was never about the money. It was always about the heart. I believe this. If Ananias would have came in and said, guess what, guys? We sold this land. And I made X amount of money. But you know what? We're just not there in our faith. All I can give was 10% of it. Maybe there's a day when we can give 50% or 75% or, or 80% or maybe we can give it all. But you know what? We're just not there in our walk right now. But you know what? Here it is. I think the Lord would have been delighted. We wouldn't have been reading about Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. Why? Because it was never about the money. It was about the hypocrisy in his heart. Let me just be gracious for a moment to all of us because I think we all need grace in this. Becoming a disciple is a process. Sanctification is a process. It's, it's they, they walk. I, I'm not talking about moments of failure or mess up. Every single one of us in this room have moments of failure and mess up. We all fall short daily. That's what Romans tells us. I, I'm not talking about that, that mess up. I'm talking about continually pretending to be someone you're not. Continuing to believe or project that you're something that you're not. If they would have just come in and said, you know what, here it is. It's not everything, but it's, it's what we can do. God would have been good. But they pretended. I really believe this with all my heart. God doesn't like pretenders. Look at what Jesus says to the church of Laodicea. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you would just pick one. But 
because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. The King James Version says, I will vomit you. What's he saying? He, it, God doesn't like pretenders. What, I'm saying all this to say this. God doesn't want the person you pretend to be. He wants you. Just as you are. To come in with all your frailties and failures and shortcomings. He wants the person that you are with all of your sin and your darkness and hypocrisy. Not the one that you think everybody else wants, the one that nobody wants. I love in the Old Testament, there is this verse that is continued over and over and over and over again. It says that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Here's what, here's what troubled me when I, when I read that verse one time. His name wasn't Jacob anymore. His name was Israel. Why doesn't he say the God of Israel? Remember, Jacob means deceiver. Jacob means liar. Jacob means thief. Why does he, why does he say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? Because he wants to remind you that he's still the God of the parts of you that you don't like. I think when we get honest with God, he becomes gracious to us. We've all made commitments we couldn't keep. We've all been hypocritical. And thank God none of us have dropped dead. That's called mercy. See, the gospel isn't about what we give. It's about what we've been given. For God so loved the world that he, he gave. He gave his son, his very only son. And when he gave his son, you know what he promised? That he would cover our blemishes and our imperfections. Why? Because we've all... We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God cannot look at our sin. But when Jesus came, Jesus became the filter for our sin. And if we would just come that way and say, here I am. We don't have to pretend anymore. We don't have to cover up anymore. Do you know since the Garden of Eden, man's been trying to cover himself? In the Garden of Eden, man, man sinned. As soon as man sinned, he did two things. He hid himself and he covered himself with fig leaves, the sensitive areas of his body, the intimate areas. Since the fall of man, we've been trying to cover ourselves and hide the intimate areas of our life. But God gave us a cover. His name is Jesus. I said all that today to say this, and he doesn't want your lips. He wants your heart. Can you give your heart to him today? Can you fully give it to him? With every head bowed and every eye closed, that's the story of the gospel, that Jesus would come. He would take imperfect people like us, people who were flawed, sinful creatures, full of the worst of humanity, and he would make our hearts brand new. He that knew no sin would become our sin. That's the gospel. And all he asks you to do is give him your heart in return. He gave everything. He gave, him, he, gave him, he gave us his son on the cross. All he's asking us to do is give him our heart. How do we do that? It's, it's called repentance. 
It's when we turn and we just say, God, I'm imperfect. I'm fallen. Take my sin. Take my shame. Forgive me of it. I give you my heart. I don't want to pretend anymore. Here's who I am. And then we become covered by the blood. Today, with every head bowed and every eye closed, maybe you're in this place and maybe you've given him the lip service. Maybe you've sang the songs, you've prayed the prayers, but you've never really given him your heart. Can you give him your heart today? It's as simple as A, B, C, A. You just admit. Admit that you're a sinner, that you're fallen, that you need a Savior. God didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make spiritually dead people alive. You just admit that you're spiritually dead. B, you believe. Believe what? That Christ alone became the sin bearer for you and your sins. And on the cross at Calvary, he took your sin, your shame, and your guilt, and he died for it. And see, you confess. The book of Romans says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you shall be saved. You just confess. I can't help you with A and B, but I can't help you with C. You say, Pastor Nick, that's me today. I want to give my heart to Jesus. Nobody's looking at me. I want to pray a prayer with you right where you are in your seat. Just raise your hand all over so I know who I'm praying with today. Raise raise it very, very high so I know who I'm praying with. Thank you. I see you in the balcony. One, two, three, four, five. Thank you. Six, seven, eight. Very good. Nine. Very good. Ten, eleven, twelve. Amazing. You can put your hands down. I'm asking one last time just for you. Will you give your heart to him today? Will you join the 12 people who've already raised their hand? Is there anybody else? Thank you. 13. Very good. Amazing. Church, this morning we're going to pray with 13 people who are becoming brand new. I believe Jesus is coming into their hearts. There's nothing special about this prayer. It's just a condition of your heart when you pray it. Can we all say this together? We say this with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe that on the cross you took my sin, my shame, and my guilt. You died for it. I believe that you faced hell for me so I will not have to go. You rose on the third day to give me a purpose on earth, a relationship with your Father, and you'll forgive my sins. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin. I trust in you. I give you my heart. Take all of it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we give all of the prayer that prayer today? Big, big hand clap.